Good morning, Southbrook. Hey, I've got a question. I want to know what a human foosball campfire is going to be like. Awesome. Uh, sounds like sounds like something you got to watch. So that 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 dad's camp out. Every time I'm going to the men's restroom, there's a sign right there, and it says one. Of the, it keeps human foosball campfire, and it's all like one phrase. So I don't know what that's going to be like. It might be dangerous, but it sounds like fun. So get dads, pay attention to that. Hey, I am always excited about things that are happening around here at the Southbrook campus. Um, this past week, we hosted uh, the filming of Leadership Cast Super Teams. And that's produced by some partners that we have at Southbrook called Leadership 365. And the whole purpose of Leadership 365 is to challenge and inspire leaders across the country, and specifically for this next month of October. And we have the privilege and the unique uh, capabilities of, of using our facility and creating then the atmosphere that are literally, will literally be hosting thousands of church leaders and, and churches across the country next month, primarily because Southbrook is generous, open-handed, and loving to do things like this. Um, it's been said that the 33rd president of the United States, um, I was not around, when, and I was actually there, but I didn't notice this. On his desk, he has a sign that said, Harry Truman, uh, the buck stops here. I've seen pictures of that. And uh, I want you to know that because of your generosity in training church leaders, not only in the Washington, D.C. area, growing leaders across the country, uh, feeding those battling food insecurities, and literally in having provided backpacks for our children to carry into their schools, that's all because of you and, and generosity. Thank you for being so generous with your money, your resources, your time, your effort, and continue to do that as we continue to, to, to try to be a part of not only this community here, but the Big C Church really across the world. And your generosity is super, super important in that. So we're continuing in this series of messages um, from the book of Romans. In the New Testament, Paul's letter to the church at Rome. This letter would have been read out loud to, to people in the Roman Empire, uh, in Roman cities. And Paul didn't actually found this church, but he was writing this letter. So it's very, very critical and very important. We're spending a lot of time in the book of Romans, as you have already known from the past, and we'll continue on uh, even through the Christmas season. That'll be interesting to see how Romans is connected to Christmas. But it's super important. And so we want to encourage you to continue being here, continue watching online if you're not able to be here, because this is just important. Now, my message today is actually a continuation of Charlie's message last Sunday, which was called Guilty, uh, Please Stand, Part 1, and mine is creatively named Guilty, Please Stand, Part 2. So if you know what it is to plead guilty and just take a stand and take an accountability, then you probably know what Part 2 is. What follows a pleading of guilty? And that would be the sentencing or the judgment or the penalty that's involved in the charge, whatever that might be. Many of you know that when I first started attending here at Southbrook some 15, 16, 17 years ago, it was after I concluded a long-term ministry, a, a teaching pastor ministry in Xenia, and it was at that time then that uh, Judge Michael K. Murray was elected to the Xenia Municipal Court, and he invited me to, and appointed me to serve as his court administrator. My actual title was clerk of court, but no one knows what the clerk of court does, so his court administrator was my function. And uh, I would tell you that those 12 years, two six-year terms, were, were really meaningful times for my life and my life and my 
vocational life and just my experience of life itself, I learned so, so much. One of the things that I learned really quickly is that no one ever wants to go to court. No one. I mean, even jury duty. Like, you know, people walk in and they are just, I mean, having a bad day just because they're there. They don't want to be there. Every now and then someone will say, I'm looking forward to this, but, but that was rare. Most people just never wanted to come to court, so they'd walk up into their, the second floor there of Xenia Municipal Court, and they would just be in a bad mood because no one wants to come to court. Whether you're being the one that's going to be before the judge or whether you're a witness or whether you're a defendant or whether you're whatever, no one, no one ever wants to come to court. I had not only been to, to, in my job, probably maybe a couple, three weeks. My office was actually not in the clerk's office area. It was back down a hallway. And one day I was walking from my office into the clerk's office, and there's three windows there where people would come in off the elevator and then state their business, and then one of our deputy clerks would tell them what to do next. I'm walking into the clerk's office, and right immediately to my right is one of those windows. And I just happened to see a, a silhouette. I knew a person was standing there. I didn't notice who it was. I couldn't have told you the gender. I just know a person was there. And then all of a sudden, it just, they just disappeared. And I remember I, I caught my attention. I looked over, and there was no one at the window. There, there was someone there just, just a second before that. I thought, okay, I'll just go on and do my business. I walked around whatever I was going to do, whoever I was going to talk to. And then a, a couple minutes later, I walked back, and there was a person standing there at that first window, and it was someone from our church. And they had ducked <laughs> because they didn't want, to, want me to see them there, that they were coming and had to appear at court. No one ever wants to go, especially when your pastor, your former pastor, is now the clerk, and one of your church members is going to be the judge. I interviewed just uh, Judge Murray uh, this past a couple weeks ago just to kind of in preparation for this message. And I know he's a South Brooker, and he and his wife have been attending here for a long, long time. And uh, one of the things I asked him, I said, so what I'm curious as to when you hear people refer to you as a good judge, and people would do that all the time. They say, is Judge Murray on the bench or is so-and-so on the bench? I don't want so-and-so to be on the bench because they're – whatever reason. Most of the time, it was because they maybe viewed a, a certain judge as maybe being harsher or more mean or, le or easier on their sentencing. But, but uh, Judge Murray, in his response, he said, well, I hope that what they would say to me, and, and I could vouch this is true, that they believed that he was fair and that he would listen. And uh, he didn't have his mind made up and wasn't just a, just a mean judge. So there was something about fairness of him. I also knew that he was not a respecter of persons. He made it very clear in the very beginning that uh, irregardless of who you are when you stand before him, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a court employee or the clerk of courts or a family member. I told my family members, listen, don't you dare, if you ever get pulled over, you are not to name drop my name as being the court administrator of the Xenia Municipal Court. Well, it didn't work. There were some who still tried to do that. But for those of you who have, at some point or another, been before a judge or a jury and you had to appear for whatever reason, maybe it was something as simple as a speeding ticket or you could have been a witness or you could have been, could have been something uh, much more serious than that, could have even been a criminal case or family court or divorce, or, uh, even something that might involve jail time or even prison, you know the emotion that's involved in being in a courtroom, standing before someone, a man or a woman, in a robe, that's going to determine your fate in this matter or a jury of your peers 
that's going to determine your fate. There's a sense of trepidation. There's a sense of anxiousness. There's a sense of fear involved there. But we're not talking about that kind of a court, that kind of a judgment. We're talking about judgment before God. We're talking about eternity. The stakes are much, much higher, much different than just a, a court of our, of our peers. And that's what I want to talk about today. And I want to be very open because one of my objectives in this message is to maybe help clear up, provide more information, maybe provide a new or different perspective on what it means to stand before God in judgment, especially for those of you who are Christ followers. Because if you're like me, when I was growing up, that was the, one of the scariest things I ever thought about. Probably helped make my decision to become a Christian because I thought if I could become a Christian, then maybe the judge will be more lenient or grade me on the curve when I stand before him. My guess is that if you've ever attended a funeral, which most of you have, at some point you've heard the pastor use the verse in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, that people are destined, appointed to die once, and then the what? Then the judgment. I mean, that verse is used a lot. It's used in revival meetings, you know, and, and used in churches. And, you know, I was thinking about this earlier this week or this couple weeks ago when I was preparing this message. I don't ever recall in any of those messages the pastor using the verses previous to 927 or the verses following 927. Now, don't turn to that right now, but I'm going to come all the way back in full circle at the end of this message and share with you what those verses say because there's some significant information about that prior and post Hebrews 927. We all have a different view of death, don't we? Um, one of my favorite things to do every Sunday is gather in the atrium and just kind of watch as you all come into the building. Um, just to say hi, smile, and say good morning. I love it when some of there's several of the, our kids who will come in, I've known for years, and will come up and give me high fives or give me a hug. There's, uh, there's two little girls, uh, ages six and five, Brooke and Kelly, that, uh, that every morning, in fact, this happened this morning already, it's a little game on who sees each other first. And uh, it's just a fun, fun little game. Uh, they come with their aunt and also with their mom. And uh, so I found out uh, they're so to totally different. Brooke is six. She's much more, more of an introvert. She's kind of coming out of her shell a little bit. But for a long time, she would always hide behind her and her mom and just play this little game of hide and seek. And, and Kelly, on the other hand, is a five-year-old. She is not at all reserved. She is very outgoing, very extroverted, uh, not intimidated by anything. So that kind of tells you a little bit about the two of their personalities. Well, some time ago, their, their dog, Oscar, was really, really sick and uh, was probably going to die. And so the mom, who's one of our counselors, Southbrook, or, or their aunt, aunt, rather, was telling them and kind of preparing them and mom, too, about what's going to happen when Oscar dies. And so... Uh, one of them was saying, well, when Oscar dies, he'll go to, to heaven to be with Big Daddy God, which is what Brooke calls God and when she prays for him, which I love, Big Daddy God. He'll go to be with Big Daddy God and with Grandma Marilyn, who had passed away recently. And that gave Brooke a lot of, a lot of uh, things to think about and kind of helped her with, with this, this decision. Well, the day came when Oscar died. And Brooke calls first Rachel, the, the counselor, her aunt, and FaceTimes her and says, well, Aunt Rachel, uh, Oscar died, 
And uh, so Rachel said, well, did he, did, did Oscar go to be with Big Daddy God and Grandma Marilyn? And she said, yeah, he did. And, and very somber, very reflective, like she would be. And then she handed the phone over to Kelly, the five-year-old. Kelly hadn't heard everything that I think was being said to Brooke. So Kelly gets on and says, uh, well, Oscar, Oscar died. And, and Rachel said, well, did he go up to heaven to be with Big Daddy God? And Brooke had this look on her face like, what? No. He's dead right there on the floor. <laughs> She's the realist. So we all have a little different perspective of death and dying. Um, but the good news isn't the good news until we clearly understand our need. And we've been talking about this human diagnostic that uh, we've been sharing the last several weeks. Charlie shared it last week. We're more messed up and more damaged than we could ever imagine. And yet we're more greatly loved than we could ever hope for. And that is so true. So keep that in mind as we dig into our text this morning. Verse 12, first of all. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. That pretty much includes everyone, right? It's interesting to me that Paul uses the word sin for both those who, who, who are apart from the law and those who are in the law. He does use a different word, though, for what happens as a result of sin to those of under the law, it's judged, so those apart from the law will be perished, which your word means to be destroyed. And so there is a different word, but, but, but sin is used for both. We, we don't like that word sin today. It's, this is the 21st century, and, and there's a lot of, I mean, we'll, we'll say, well, uh, instead of lying, well, I, I misspoke. You hear that a lot, don't you? And some action that we did that was uh, that's clearly wrong, well, that was a misstep. We don't like the word sin. Austin McMahon, uh, one of our teaching pastors, who teaches a lot of uh, Pizza Paul and Mary, which is, by the way, on Tuesdays and available every week for those of you who want to come and dig a little deeper into this text. You can find more information on the website about that. But he was talking about sin, and he said sin is, is when things are not the way they're supposed to be. That's good. I also like the idea, this is what helps me, is sin is is when you are misaligned. Have you ever had a car that you're driving and all, and, and you start noticing that, man, it keeps pulling to the right or to the left, one way or the other, and you, you hear this, this sounds up front, you know, and uh, our, our, my wife always said, well, it sounds like this. I'd never know what that sounds like, but she says, it sounds like this. So, so the sounds are up front, and you notice your tires are wearing badly. Well, you, you take it in, and it's misaligned, and so they have to line it up, and it's done some damage to the, your vehicle, and and it's, it, that's what sin does. Sin is a misalignment, where it's misaligned in our thinking, misaligned in our attitudes, in our behaviors. And as a result of being misaligned, there's always damage that's done to our soul, or damage that's done to other people, or to relationships, because we're misaligned. And so Paul uses this word that we have we've sinned, and as a result of sin, we are misaligned. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Now those hearing this letter read, many of them were Gentile converts, so they, weren't, they hadn't raised, been raised under the law. They didn't really know the law, many of them. Many of them were Greeks who, who again, who were, were not raised under the law. So the question then, it, it looms, well, what about those who, who don't know the law? What about those who don't even believe in God? And that's a question we have today. What, what about all everyone who's going to face judgment, but don't even know the law, don't even know the, the name of Jesus, maybe. 
And Paul answers that question in these next few verses. He said, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required law. In other words, there's something inside of us that still follows that law, even though we don't believe in it. They are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and other times even defending them. Very interesting. Commentator William Barclay, who I love reading uh, matters like this, he lays down two great principles for these verses. One is that a person will be judged by what he or she had the opportunity to know. If he knew the law, we'd be judged by the law. If we don't know the law, then we, we'd be judged as one who did not know the law. But he says, number two, even those who do not know the written law have an unwritten law within their hearts. So therefore, neither could claim exemption from the judgment of God. Let's talk about the law written on our hearts. I think it's a, first of all, it's a very distinct contrast to the law written on tablets of stone as we read about in Moses and Exodus. And Paul uses this phrase, uh, unwritten law. To the Greeks, especially to those involved in Stoicism, they would have loved this because they believed that the law inside of you, the law written inside of you, is more important and more valuable than any civil statute that you could ever possibly write. Now, Paul would not have agreed with that. He would not have put that on the same level as the revelation of God. But Paul is still saying, hey, even those who don't believe in the revelation of God, there's still something inside of you that God planted there that is called the law written in your hearts. He talks about our conscience. Remember Jiminy Cricket? Let your conscience be your guide to Pinocchio. Well, don't do that, completely at least. But our conscience, Paul talks about that. It bears witness, he says. Something deep inside of us bears witness, and we know that our conscience can be both our aid and our adversary. In some moment, it's counseling us, it's mentoring us, it's advising us. In another moment, it's condemning us rationalizing, excusing our behavior. Someone who said the mind has an infinite ability to rationalize. But even our conscience is proof that there's this inner, one, one pastor referred to as, a, as an oughtness, an inner oughtness. This moral compass, we sang about that this morning. Let the Lord be your compass and your guide. This moral compass that drives us and it, it leads us to, to feel like there's this basic intuitive sense of right from wrong. And that's why we feel so strongly. And you don't even have to necessarily be a believer in Jesus Christ to know that, that basic human rights, there's certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong. I mean, it's just intuitive. That's why we're outraged even sometimes when you, your own human rights are, are violated or when vulnerable people around you or abused, or mistreated, or even killed. There was an interesting article in 1998, um, it was published in 1998, in the uh, Chronicle of Higher Education called Cultural Relativism and Universal Human Rights. That's a fancy title, uh, but this is written by an anthropologist. Her name is Carolyn Fleur Lauben, and, and I need you to know up front, she's not a believer. In fact, she would probably classify herself as either an agnostic or an atheist. So she's not a believer in Christ or in the Bible or in, in this 
written the revelation of God. But she's an anthropologist, and she's, she's extremely passionate about a number of human rights, specifically uh, violence towards women and racial injustice. And so um, Laban would, would go to different parts of the world and countries and thinking that if I can just go there and if I can just teach them basic human rights, especially those cultures that would, be, would mistreat women or have racial injustice, that I can make a difference. And what she found was, is kind of incredible, is she'd go to different places and they would be, they would literally run her out of the country. They would say, don't bring your Western culture and try to tell us that you're right and we're all wrong. This is how we've believed all of our lives. And she was, she was totally confused and aghast at, at the fact that people just couldn't understand that these these were basic human rights, and these things were right, and these things were wrong. And so she wrote this later on. Again, this is from an agnostic or from an atheist. She says, and I quote, When there is a choice between defending human rights and defending cultural relativism, in other words, believe whatever you want to believe or what your culture has taught you to believe, then anthropologists should choose to defend human rights. Now what's fascinating about that is that she doesn't have a basis for saying that. There's no foundation for her to say it other than this is right. And this, and she actually goes, these things are evil. Who told you that? Where did you come up with that? What's the foundation for that? That's because if we're just products of, of uh, evolution, then basically it's always going to be the strong overpowering the weak. And that would be right for them if that's all we are, because that would be culture. But she knew that there was a basic difference between right and wrong. Now, it's my conviction, as it is, I'm sure, with many of you, that that intuitive sense of good and evil comes from our Creator God, who made us in His image and is inherently good and wants that good for all people and has written the law not only in Scripture, but also in our hearts. And that's what drives our conscience. But don't be deceived. Even our conscience can be ignored denied, or even seared. When Paul writes his first letter to Timothy, he talks about how people are in the last days are going to deny the truth, they're going to abandon the faith, they're going to be full of hypocrisy and lies, having seared their consciences with like a hot iron. The word literally means branded. Branded. If you've ever had a serious burn on a part of your body, you know that part of the, the difficulty of that healing is the fact that nerves, nerve endings have been damaged. And a lot of times there's no feeling left in that part of their body that has been burned. And so Paul is saying that it's possible for a person to ignore, deny, or literally because of their own choices and their own will, burn and numb their conscience. And if you remember the message that Charlie shared a few weeks ago, when that happens, God has no other choice but to say, I'll give you over to that because I'm not going to force you to believe in me. Now verse 16 is the last verse in our text and it's one of the most important. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Now if you didn't, you weren't ready to stand up and say guilty before, I bet you are now. Charlie talked about this, this, this invisible tape recorder that records all of our actions from, our, from the day we were born to the day we die, all of those things. And what about, a, what about a secret video that records our secrets and our motives? 
This is the only courtroom where that would be allowed. I share with you my experiences with, with, with court. And I, uh, I'm not a lawyer. But I know if someone would ever question a defendant and say, so what were you thinking when you did that? What was really in your heart when that happened? Someone would say, whoa, 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 objection. That calls for speculation. We're, we have laws against self-incrimination. You can't do that. You have to just use the actual evidence that's inside. You can't force someone to share what was really inside of them. We, we try really, really hard, don't we? To, what was the motive? What, were, what, what was going on? Why did they do that? Well, that's, that's the laws of our land. But in God's courtroom, he's more concerned about what's inside anyway. And that's why he says, I'll, I'll judge your secrets. Now, if that didn't scare you before, it does now. But here's the rest of that. It's through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. The very thing that condemns us as guilty is also the means through which we are saved. His gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. I think one of the most fascinating conversions in the Bible would be the conversion of, of Paul. And the reason I say it is because growing up in, a, in, a, in the home that I grew up in, uh, I didn't have a lot of the deep, dark sins that I needed to confess. In fact, there are times I actually, and this is a true story, I actually almost wanted to make up stuff because that would make my testimony a lot more you know, exciting. I didn't have an exciting testimony, I thought. you know. And, and people get up and talk about all their deep, dark sins. I thought, man, I, I, don't, I don't have anything like that to share. But I had, I had my, my dealings. I had my self-righteousness. And Paul said, I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And not all the Pharisees were bad. But Jesus didn't have a whole lot of good things to say about Pharisees because many times it was, it was all about their self-righteousness. They'd place themselves on a different pedestal than anyone else. And Paul would have been right there at the top of that a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And if you will watch through Paul's life, in fact, uh, every week we're putting out some questions for you to kind of dig deeper in. And one of the questions that you'll be reading about that I've posed is to journal through Paul's life. I've given you some things, some scriptures to, to read about. And listen to the things, he, how he describes himself all the way through his, what I call his journey of judgment. Because judgment is not just for one day. Judgment begins as we follow Christ and continues on, and then there's a finality to it when we see him again. So if you followed Paul's journey to, to judgment, you'll see that he refers to himself in several different ways. He calls himself an apostle. He calls himself uh, the least of the apostles. He calls himself uh, uh, the least of all the saints. And then he finally says, towards the end of his life, this is, at, this is when Paul knows the Lord the best in his life. He has he journeyed all the way through, and now he's, He's really actually ready to, to leave. And in, in his first letter to Timothy, he says, if you line up all the sinners, all the sinners who'd ever lived, put me at the front. I'm the worst. I'm the chief of all the sinners. You say, Paul, man, you've got a bad self-image. You need to see a therapist. You know, There's something wrong with you. Why are you thinking so badly of yourself? No, not at all. Not in the least. In fact, Paul knew Jesus so well by this time in his life. He was so close and understood the grace of God so deeply that because of that knowledge of the goodness of God, he saw himself as he really was. And that's because he knew Jesus was there. Now, 
It's one of the last things that Paul said. He wrote, he says, for I am, my departure is at hand. I'm ready to go. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me on that day, and not to me only, but all those who are called according to his purpose. Does that sound like someone with a bad self-image? Does that sound like someone who's, who's dreading and afraid of standing before God as judge for that finality? No, it sounds like he's looking forward to that, doesn't it? Because that day is when the Lord is going to release him and say, you know, you're free. You're free completely. Or maybe talk to, uh, to the Apostle John and say, John, what was it like as you, were, as you were thinking in the book of Revelation when you were on this Isle of Patmos and you saw this revelation? And what was that like, John? And John records in the fifth chapter of Revelation. I love this because he, he's looking for uh, the throne. If you read the whole fifth chapter of Revelation, you'll see this. He's... He's looking at this throne, the, the ultimate of judgment and authority, the throne. And he's looking for a, a lion, the lion of Judah. And what does he see? He sees a slaughtered lamb. A slaughtered lamb, a sacrificial lamb. And that was Jesus, the slaughtered lamb on the throne of judgment. Back in uh, 1738, Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon called The Excellencies of Christ. And he talks about Jesus being both the lion and the lamb. I want to read to you the excerpt of this message. I think it's so appropriate and so beautiful. He says this. He said, a lion excels in strength and in the majesty of his appearance and voice. A lamb excels in meekness and a sacrifice for human clothing and food. But Jesus Christ is both, because the diverse excellencies of both lion and lamb are wonderfully met in him. Indeed, in Jesus Christ, there is a conjunction of truly diverse excellencies, as otherwise would be utterly incompatible in the same subject. So there do meet in Christ infinite highness and infinite accessibility, infinite justice and yet infinite grace, infinite glory and yet infinite humility, infinite majesty and infinite transcendent meekness, absolute sovereignty and yet perfect submission, infinite all-sufficiency in himself and yet entire trust and dependency on God. He's a lion. He's a lamb. He's a rock. He's a pearl. He's a mighty captain. He's a tender lover. He's a fragile flower. He's a mighty tree of life. Jesus combines character traits that would never be combined in any single person. Traits that we would consider mutually exclusive, contradictory, and yet he combines them in such a way that you'd never think they could be combined in the same person. That's Jesus. Lion and lamb. Now, let's come full circle. I told you earlier, I want to come back to Hebrews 9.27. Because more than likely, you've heard that verse of Scripture, but you've not heard the verses prior to that and the verses following that. It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment? Yes, absolutely. But what did the Hebrew writer say before that? And what is the context and what does he say after that? Let me summarize the verses before that. He refers to Christ as the ultimate high priest who enters into the Holy of Holies with a blood sacrifice, but not of an animal, of his own. 
He's that lamb, the sacrifice lamb. And then it says, the sacrifice was to pay the price so that justice people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting on him. That's the context of that passage. When I interviewed Judge Murray, he said, what were some of the things maybe that you that are most meaningful to you? It had to be very difficult being a judge and making those decisions. I, I, I can't imagine, actually. He said, really, one of the most rewarding things, I know we have other judges in different courts who are members of Southbrook or either here or listening online, and I know that some of those courts have some of the same kind of programs, but they're diversion programs that Judge Murray set up in his court to allow for individuals to plead guilty and then go and go through a program, and then after which they could come back and then be uh, have their, their charges cleared as a result of going through the program. And so when those diversion programs would take place and those conditions were met, oftentimes they would come back in the courtroom then the second time, very different than the first time. The first time was with fear and trepidation, anxiousness, nervousness, fear, dread. The second time would be to set, be set free. And Judge Murray said what he would often do would come out from behind the bench then and would hand, personally hand them their certificate and say, you're free. Go in peace. In our legal system, we are uh, innocent until proven guilty. And that's, that's a good thing. That there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But in God's courtroom, flip it around, we are guilty until proven innocent. And the beauty of that is, is that that's been proven by Jesus Christ. He has paid the price. And so when the Christ follower comes before God on that day, even with our secrets and our inner beings and all that, we can go like Paul and say, my departure is at hand. I fought that good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. There's this crown of righteousness. I don't deserve it. It's because of grace. But I know that I'm going to be free. I want you to stand, and we're going to sing a song together. And this song is simply declaring what we have just said in the last few minutes. And I want you to not only just enjoy the song, I want you to revel in the song. I want you to sing with confidence and with gratitude and with excitement and with enthusiasm that that lion, that lion, that lamb on the throne was actually for you as well. And that we can sing this song with such amazing joy and gratitude and anticipation because you know that the price for my sin, for my guilt, has been paid. And the price for your guilt has been paid. We're guilty until proven innocent, and Jesus has done that by paying the price. And now, Father, we thank you for this amazing gift that you provided for us of your grace, that you've paid that price. 
Even as we celebrate these emblems of communion, Father, they just remind us again and affirm to us that that price has been paid. Thank you, Jesus, for paying that price. And everyone who agreed with that said, amen. Have a wonderful weekend. God bless you.